This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. As you know, it's not business as usual. Jason and I spending the week at our homes doing our broadcasts, as were all of our guests that we talked to. And this edition of Bloomberg Business Week, again, we're taping this largely on Thursday as the story continued to evolve in terms of stimulus packages, in terms of market reaction, and in terms, of course, of the virus count and the spread, Jason. Well, and Carol, what I found so interesting about this week so far. And as you say, week's not over yet, and we know things can change very quickly. There were diverging storylines in many ways. We saw the markets get a little more enthusiastic, maybe a lot more enthusiastic in some cases, about stimulus, as you mentioned, economic, monetary actions by the federal government. At the same time, and you and I, as you pointed out, are both in the New York City area, we are seeing still a deep and seemingly abiding health crisis in certain parts of this country. And so the push and the pull is really hard to synthesize in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And you saw that play out within officials uh, at the White House and in Washington versus some of the governors in the hardest hit states, whether it was New York, whether it was New Jersey, whether it was California. There is this growing divide about getting the nation back, getting the economy back on track versus those states who are still just trying to get uh, trying to really deal with the crisis, which has yet to peak. And so that was certainly a bit of a tension this week overall. I also want to say, Jason, it was the week of big numbers, uh, that weekly jobless numbers. Uh, we all knew it was going to be a big number, 3.3 million uh, jobless claims surging uh, for the most recent week. And that number, when it hit, still, you know, it was a shocker. And then let's not forget this bailout or stimulus package that was working its way through Congress, you know, $2 trillion and folks saying that this is only phase three and phase four and five expected to come as well. So it was a number that on many different levels, of course, uh, was shocking. And of course, the personal feelings and this is a and the personal impact I should say in terms of folks still coming down with the virus and folks uh, losing their lives because of the virus. Well, and it's important going back to the numbers for a second to understand that superlatives really fail us at this point because the orders of magnitude larger that these measures, these figures are, is just incredible. You think about that 3.3 million that you pointed out. If you go back to the last sort of darkest time that we had, which is the depths of the financial crisis, the weekly number then, the worst weekly number was about 600,000, give or take. So you're talking about five times, you know, four or five times what we saw in the Great Recession. And that's why people are really struggling. That's why you see the market taking these wild swings. That's why you have individual people, as you say, some of whom are struggling with this disease in particular, but others who are just struggling living their daily lives in an economy that has completely been turned upside down. Absolutely. And that leads us to a story that's in the magazine this week. It's by our economics editor, Peter Coy. And Peter has been such a great person to talk to and to read his work because he really is looking at this you know, from a bigger perspective, from a historical perspective, from an economic perspective, because ultimately one of the conversations that really came to the forefront, Jason, is, you know, we do have to think about keeping our economy going or getting it back on track. And the bigger the fall is because of the coronavirus, 
it's going to be much more difficult to get it moving again on the other side. And so Peter writes about in the magazine this week about big ideas to save the economy from bailouts to super chapter 11, but it's all specifically about how do you help companies, right? How do you keep them going as much as you can through the virus so that they don't come come undone or file bankruptcy or so on so that when we get on the other side, there is there are still companies out there, there are still jobs to be had, there's still economic input. All right, let's check out that conversation with Peter Coy. Well, I decided to focus on business. We are business week after all. Mm-hmm. And I, I take it for granted that we have to do a lot to save the individuals, people who are laid off, people who aren't laid off, but are still in financial stress. That goes without saying, well, maybe it doesn't go without saying, it should be said very clearly. But what I'm talking about is what to do to rescue businesses. And I think that cannot be given short shrift because when a company fails, if, if, it, if it goes through hard times and comes back, that's one thing. But if it actually fails, if, it, if, it, if it's liquidated, goes out of business, there is real damage done, not just to the employees of that firm and its owners, but to the economy as a whole. It's going to be much harder for the economy to bounce back after this COVID virus fades if people... Uh, if, if companies have been dismantled and have to be started from scratch, there's organizational capital, there's social capital that's permanently lost. I'm thinking about teams. Yeah. We have a lot of teams working at Bloomberg, so we know about this, but there are teams throughout the economy. When those teams are broken up, it's hard to put them back together again. Yeah, I love this line you have in your story, Peter. Hurt but don't kill, bend it but do not break it. Uh, Certainly policymakers are thinking along those lines, but CEOs have to be thinking that way too, right? Right. If you're a CEO, you're thinking, look, I've got to just find some way to get past this. And if, if it means reaching out to the government for help, you know, I'll do it because I can't afford to lose these people. They might not come back to me. You know, we we had a tight labor market before this crisis hit, and I hope we'll have a tight labor market after it passes. Uh, and because there's a shortage of of skilled people in the economy, there has been, and there will be again. You don't want to lose your teams. And that was Peter Coy, the economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week, talking about his story in this week's edition of the magazine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, how the coronavirus outbreak is impacting the early stage investment community. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had on our daily radio show about the coronavirus this week. And Jason, as we want to remind everybody, this story was very fluid and constantly advancing and changing. But uh, some of these conversations just uh, really struck home. Well, absolutely. And I think part of what we heard consistently, Carol, was what happens next? What are the impacts? And we try and look at that throughout the course of the show. And one of the voices we caught up with, Carol, was Michael Moe. He's the co-founder of GSV Asset Management, an author, an investor, longtime resident and entrepreneur investor there in Silicon Valley. We started by asking him what it's like there in the Valley. Clearly everywhere, uh, people are, are, um, you know, are in a little bit of a shock. And I think the you know the the fear of the virus you know has um, really kind of consumed many people's thinking and behavior and, and when people get scared and I think many a lot of people are scared 
you know, it's hard to focus on uh, much else. And so I think, generally speaking, that's kind of it. It's a little bit eerie. It's, you know, I live in a place where there's typically a lot going on, a lot of energy, and it's very, very quiet. Yeah, and I think we do wonder, Michael, you know, how much of kind of how we're adjusting our lives at this point, how much of it, once we get through this, I'm assuming we, of course, will, you know, that how much of it stays with us in terms of, you know, concerns about viruses, because there will be more viruses to come, but also how we're kind of adapting our work lives, a lot of us working from home, and the ability to do that. I just wonder, you know, we had a conversation with someone who talked to a well-known uh, investor, Kathy Wood, who invests in disruption. And she says, you know, when you see market disruption, that's where you kind of get innovation uh, and opportunity. So I wonder, you know, if you're looking at it in a similar way. That's clearly where the half is glass, you know, the half, the mm. glass is half full. I mean, you've seen this over and over again, where you've had dislocation and disruption. You've also had huge opportunities. And so I think what's exciting, and, and, and then again, this is a very serious situation. And and obviously the most important thing is you know, health and safety. But you are seeing people in their creativity and their innovation thinking about what you know, what does this mean and where does this go. So what I like to say is we were, it was it was B.C. before, that's before corona, and now we've got A.D., which is going to be you know, after the disease. And these opportunities that emerge, A.D., um, I think are going to be, uh, very exciting, and, and so that's part of what we're doing is focus on what what those opportunities might be, and also understand what it means for kind of the companies that um, grew up in the old world. Right. Well, one of the things we I wanted to make sure we talked about, Michael, was you know normally this time of year you are like in the thick of planning this massive conference that you do in in San Diego in partnership with Arizona State. Uh, I believe you know, you bring together some huge speakers to talk about future of education, education technology, ed tech specifically, uh, I guess two things. It seems like you've made a big decision to do a lot of that virtually this year. Tell us about that first. Well, we're shifting the physical conference to the fall um, with the hopes that things will be um, more or less back to normal by then. Mm-hmm. But we didn't want to lose the um, opportunity to convene people that we're going to do it virtually. So we're going to have a one-day virtual uh, event um, uh, next Wednesday, April 1st, and we call this, you know, the dawn of the age of digital learning, because while digital learning has been, you know, growing at a very healthy clip up until now, um, you know, this, the coronavirus has really been uh, a major catalyst to mm. accelerate this, and with, whether you're a parent, whether you're a K-12 school, you know, there's 1.4 billion kids around the world right now that, that we're going to school and now are home. Um, you know, universities are scrambling to figure out what they do to, um, you know, to provide uh, courses for for their for their you know, college students. And corporations are, are are reimagining what they need to do to upskill, reschool their their workforce. So it it is, is as much of this is a a very difficult situation for society and for the economy. For online learning, um, it's it's I think a you know it, it's based on accelerant to the future. Well, and the same thing with like, I think, um, you know, using the virtual world in terms of distance and reaching out to our medical community, right? In terms of uh, telehealth. Um, I mean, I wonder if that is something that we look at very differently coming out on the other side. For sure. I mean, again, I think this has been this has been a, a total shift in terms of how people you know, think about 
you know what you know those are the realities of of a interconnected world urbanization and uh, and and globalization that that uh you know the pandemics you know people that are you know worry about you know things that could happen in the future have been worried about pandemics for some time but really this is the first time where it's been you know basically you know relevant to everybody yeah. and i think that kind of you know mind shift is going to affect you know this isn't cuz the genie's not going back in the bottle i think it's a permanent shift about how people think about um, activity and how they've done, you know, how they do things in the future differently than maybe they did in the past. You know, you wrote a book uh, a couple years ago uh, that I read. It's fantastic, and it's about global Silicon Valley. This whole notion of the global Silicon Valley is the global Silicon Valley handbook is the technical title. Um, but you have really explored this notion of this interconnected world and this notion that the ideas, the ethos of Silicon Valley is much wider spread than just the place where you uh, happen to be sitting right now. Does this dent that ambition at all or does it strengthen it? Yeah, I think it actually is going to strengthen it. And I think that's partially you've had this trend that's been going on for a dozen years Oh, you know the you know, GSV stands for Global Silicon Valley, and so to your point, you know the mindset of innovation and entrepreneurship that's made Silicon Valley such an amazing place, and I've been fortunate to live in for 25 years, is going, you know, spreading throughout the world. And you're looking at the ambition that uh, exists with you know, young people that want to not work for the large company but want to start their own business. And you know, in today's world, where you know you're going to have more difficult hiring is going to not be as robust as what we've seen for the last five years. You're going to see that likely accelerate because your opportunity cost to start a business is lower. Hmm. And so what we're seeing is from you know from Austin to Boston, from Chicago to Sao Paulo, from Mumbai to Shanghai, Dubai, this emergence of this global Silicon Valley. And that's Michael Mo, co-founder of GSV Asset Management, speaking to us from his home in Silicon Valley. Everybody working from home, Carol, but trying to make sense of this. And you know, it was an interesting perspective. A given Michael's you know vast yeah, sort of historical totally. and institutional knowledge, global knowledge, but also the idea that he's in a part of the country as we are that has been deeply affected on a very human level by this virus. And I'm just going to say, while you're at home, you might want to check out some of his books. He wrote The Global Silicon Valley Handbook and also Finding the Next Starbucks. So um, certainly some books to check out. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, a valuable lesson that 3M learned after the SARS epidemic of 2002-2003 that's going to let them make more than a billion medical masks by the end of the year. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. This week, we're bringing you some of our most important and we hope informative conversations we had on our daily radio show that runs 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Wall Street time every weekday. And of course, all of it was about the coronavirus. And the cover story of the magazine this week, Jason, is about 3M. 3M is a company you know really well. They make Post-its, they make Scotch tape. Well, this company is now looking to make more than a billion medical masks, something that everyone needs to get through the coronavirus. Now, the company's CEO, Mike Roman, spoke with Bloomberg's David Weston. We've been working very closely with the government. We've been working you know, with uh, with Vice President Pence from his visit, looking at how to make sure that we can shift what have been the industrial N95 respirators into healthcare. So it was really appreciate the the emergency use authorization out of the FDA and then 
the PREP Act amendment, which enabled us to be able to deliver our industrial respirators, that N95, to the healthcare workers at the front line, that was the first big step. So that is the 3M CEO, Mike Roman, talking uh, with our own Bloomberg, David Weston. Well, 3M and its uh, overall team caught up with our Brian Gruley. He's got a great story. That's the cover of the magazine this week. Brian is projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News. He's with us right now on the phone from Chicago. Also with us, Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. He's on the phone from Brooklyn. So, Brian, let me kick it off with you. I mean, 3M... Man, this is a company that has learned from past crises and figured out how to be ready for what we needed today. Talk to us about um, what they learned. Uh, I believe it was through SARS. 18 years ago, uh, you had the SARS outbreak, 2002, 2003. And after that, 3M realized they really weren't geared up to, uh, to address a real big surge in demand. And so then they decided that uh, they would build into their plants what they called surge capacity. And over the years, um, they refined this. But, but essentially what it is is putting in idle lines, you know, lines you don't use, which, you know, assembly lines you don't use, which runs contrary to most um, business sense. I mean, when, when we talk about automobile manufacturers, for instance, and we talk about down capacity, that's money going out the door because you're not, you're paying for that. You have carrying costs on that equipment and machinery and you're not getting any money for it. So this is something that 3M thought would, would be helpful in times of crisis and, and they've used it over and over again, but, but um, it never has it come into such important play as it is now. Right. So Joel Weber, uh, come on in here. What struck you about this story? Because obviously everything's a business story, as you often say. And man, this is just a business squarely in the heart of a crisis. Yeah. So I, I, um, I've thought about this story a lot because it was one of the first things that came to mind a couple of weeks ago as we were just seeing a huge um, surge in demand for for a lot of consumer products, actually, from things like toilet paper to Gojo hand sanitizer and even Clorox bleach, right? Like, and the, the idea kind of just jumped in my head of like, you know, how do you make more of these products yesterday? Mm-hmm. How does how does 3M manufacture millions and millions of masks uh, in addition to the ones that they were already doing? So I sort of just started kicking that idea around with people like Brian and Rick Clue, who's also the co-byline on this story. And 3M just kind of came back to us again as like the company, like in the middle of a crisis like this. And lo and behold, it turns out that they're a company that actually has built this manufacturing technique into its factories for precisely this moment. And so they've been able to go into overdrive actually back at beginning in January. And what we're seeing now is like by the end of the year, they, they may have been able to make as many as more than a billion face masks. And that's just incredible when you think about a company that was just sort of potentially in the right place at the right time and, and had the capacity and wherewithal to kind of plan for the future. What's interesting, too, is, you know, and Brian, I I just think about this is a company, if we think about 3M, they have just so many different products under their roofs, uh, under their roof. And most of us think about the post-it notes and, you know, those things. But, I mean, they do so much more. This is a company that's been around for a long time. They're really experts in materials. 
creating materials. And you mentioned one post it which is one of their, it's part of, you know, the adhesives they make. They have, I think, 46 different technology platforms they build from. This is a good thing for them, and it's, sometimes it's a bad thing because it's tough to keep all those different businesses going in the right direction. And when one or two are not, Wall Street doesn't like that. They, they've had some struggles over the last couple of years, but uh, they're doing pretty pretty well right now, especially in this particular spot. And uh, it's sort of an odd feel-good story in the midst of this crisis, which produces so much green news. And that's Business Week reporter Brian Gruley and Business Week editor Joel Weber. Listen, this is in some ways a story about hope and preparedness, Carol. You know, we mm-hmm. hear so much about people not learning the lessons of the past. 3M clearly got the message and acted very differently going into this crisis than in previous iterations. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the CEO of Travago explains how COVID-19 is impacting the travel industry and his team. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had on our daily radio show about the coronavirus this week. And Jason, we were really lucky. Our team, man, really hard at work bringing us folks from the corporate communities, from the medical communities, from academia, really so that we could get a the full picture on what's going on with the virus. Well, and certainly this global lockdown of sorts, you've got people staying in place, sheltering in place in some of the world's biggest cities, and travel has been brought to a complete halt. We wanted to get inside that industry, understand some of the nuances. So we caught up with Axel Hefer. He is the CEO of Travago to find out what the coronavirus is doing to his company. Yeah, to start with the most important, I mean, obviously the situation has significantly deteriorated. Um, in Europe, um, but really uh, all around the world. And we have a very global workforce, so we have a lot of affected um, um, friends and family um, in the company um, that are living in in areas that are completely locked down, that are severely affected. Um, we as a company have, uh, have moved to home office operation as pretty much every company uh, a few weeks ago and um, are so far um, okay, um, and nobody in the company has been infected. But um, yeah, the situation is is pretty dramatic in in a lot of regions, uh, in particular around Europe. Well, and Axel, you have a window like almost no no one else into the travel industry. I mean, this industry has been absolutely, for the moment, just brought to a standstill. What what does that look like from from where you sit? I I think the um, the 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 most important thing is to to think about what is actually right. And in the current situation, um, and by now I think that's that's pretty much clear to all the Western leaders. The right thing is not to travel, but to actually not move and have as little contact as possible. So um, we also communicated that to our our users um, that they should actually not travel if they don't have to. Um, and, and obviously, in a times like that, um, there shouldn't be any travel activity unless it's absolutely necessary. And, and that's also what, um, what, you, what you would expect. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that is obviously affecting the business, um, but um, that's, that's, that's okay in times like this. I mean, everybody has to, to sacrifice to really get it under control. As you look at it, what are you seeing in terms of different geographies when it comes to the virus impact? I, I think to, um, 
in, in, in a certain way, I mean, in all the Western economies or pretty much all the Western economies, um, the governments have decided to slow down the, um, the virus by shutting down pretty much the, the daily life. And, and that, that obviously has, um, has a huge impact on travel activity. I mean, nobody should travel, nobody wants to travel, nobody is allowed to travel uh, unless absolutely necessary. In, in Asia, um, there are some countries where, um, where the, the shutdown or the lockdown seems to have had a positive impact and uh, where things seem to normalize to a certain extent. But overall, from a, from a travel perspective, I think it's still too early to tell. Um, I think it will be, will be very important to think about our travelers, um, not only right now where everybody is really sitting at home um, and, and, and would like to, to be out there um, if things would, would have normalized, but more at one or two months in the future when people will have um, had a lot of indoor activity or will have been locked down into their apartment in certain areas without even being allowed to leave the apartment other than going to the supermarket. And, um, and that's really what is driving us as a business to think about that moment in time when we can actually help travelers. And right now we can only help travelers by not encouraging anybody to travel, but to, to just try to stay disciplined um, to really slow down the spreading as much as we can. Mm -hmm. And so, Axel, you know, we've been posing this question to, to a lot of experts we've been speaking with, and, and that is, you know, working under the assumption, which I think we all should, that this will abate and, and, uh, and we will get our arms around it and there will be a peak and a recovery and all of those things. What do you think changes about the business of travel in the aftermath of this? I, I think the, the, it is, uh, it's, it's fair to assume that, um, that the whole industry will be a different, different one. Um, to what extent the, the user behavior will change? I think in the short term it will change. Um, it's likely that uh, initially, and particularly in, in times of uncertainty where the virus is under control in one country and perhaps not in another or in one region, not in the other, that um, there will be a trend to shorter trips that feel safer mm. or generally travel that is perceived as, as safer and that that will only normalize over time. But the, the much more um, difficult question to answer is to what extent this will completely change the, the structure of the industry because um, it, this has never happened before that an that, uh, industry basically globally has come to a complete standstill um, within a few weeks and, um, and is likely to stay in, in that mode for quite some time. Um, and obviously, it has a huge impact on, on everybody who is, is active in any leisure activity, not only travel, but anything that is, that is really requiring people to be active and to be out there. And you are, you folks at Trivago, Axel, are thinking about, you know, this time, you are thinking about the recovery, right? And I'm assuming kind of planning for it already? Absolutely. I, I mean, it, it is obviously... <clears throat> very difficult to, to really deal with this situation. I mean, for all of us individually, um, right. in particularly, I mean, in the company with, with friends and families in very severely affected areas. And, and when this started, um, I mean, the first reaction of everybody is really damage control. I mean, and that, that's, that's very natural um, to make sure that every employee is safe, to make sure that, that really the, the business is safe so that costs are, are um, coming down, that marketing is stopped, et cetera. Um, but then it is also important to, to look into the future because the present is, is quite depressing. And, and that's what we um, thankfully started very early 
Um, and really this thought that I mentioned before, the thought of our user who has not been able to travel for quite some time but would like to and, and has been in his apartment, um, sometimes, with, as I said, with very, very limited outside activity for quite some time. That is really the moment in time where we can really make a difference to our user. And, and that's what really we are focusing on. So what kind of service and what kind of product do we need to um, uh, to bring to our users um, to really help them in that moment in time. And that is really, is really um, I, I think it's very important from a business perspective. It's also very important to help our users there, but it's also very important to keep focus in the business and, and not get, um, get, get really too, too taken away by, by the, the very, very difficult situation that, that everybody is facing personally. Uh, within the family and also, I mean, the overall society. Right. Well, and Axel, that that raises such an interesting point because, you know, ultimately people turn to you for information in, in a lot of ways. And I do wonder if the types of information that people will be looking for, you know, whether it's as simple as, you know, sort of health and safety uh type information, wellness type of information, I do wonder if that changes going forward and, and whether your team is, is thinking about those sorts of things. Absolutely. I think that, that, that that's, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what we are, what we are doing and, and trying to do right now. We're trying to think from a user perspective, where is the user um, in, in really one or two months from now? What is he thinking? What is important to him? And some things are, are obvious. Um, I mean, it's, it's clearly favorable to to show rates that you can cancel if there are still, in particular in times where there's still a lot of uncertainty. Mm. Uh, but, but safety overall will be a lot more important. Um, international air travel might still be disrupted for quite some time uh, with all the major airlines uh, reducing their networks. So, so these are exactly the thoughts that, that we are going through. Um, what is really the, the need of the user and how can we best serve that? And there, obviously, you need to think about multiple scenarios because as a global business, we will face multiple realities in different markets as every country and sometimes even every state is reacting slightly differently to manage the, the control of the spread and at the same time, the impact on the overall economy. And um, yeah, different balances uh, lead to, to different different situations or will lead to very different situations in a few months from now. And that's Axel Hefer, the CEO of Travago. And what's fascinating, Jason, we talked with him uh, in late February when, of course, there were lots of virus concerns and a lot more outside the United States. So we were able to kind of get the picture from there, but to get an update, especially as the virus has spread. And he's got truly a global team. Uh, and so to get his input was, I think, really crucial in understanding this story and the spread of the virus. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour. We're going to continue looking at all aspects of the coronavirus and really its impact on our world. Cure Leafs Boris Jordan, he's executive chairman of that company. We'll check in with him. It's a personal story for him, Jason. That caught me by surprise. So fascinating to hear what he had to say about that as well as how his company is getting through. Also, an Ivy League perspective, Barnard College President Sian Bylock, she has written extensively and studied the impact of stress on our lives. 
very relevant now, as well as the fact that she's running a major institution. Plus, Carol, one of our favorites, Paul Rabel, the co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Premier Lacrosse League. Jason, it was great to check in with Paul because the sports industry has just been shut down. And I feel like a couple of weeks ago when that started to happen, I think for many of us, we realized how widespread and how big the impact of the virus was. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily radio show, Bloomberg Business Week, about the coronavirus, its impact broadly on the economy, on businesses, executives, and human beings all across the nation. And Jason, that included the cannabis industry. We caught up with Cura Leaf's Boris Jordan. He's the executive chairman of that company. This is a personal story for him because his own daughter impacted by the virus. So we talked to him about that as well as talk to him about continuing to run his business because that's what he's doing and also how this is impacting his team, his team of workers. Well, and we also went into two worlds very much affected mm-hmm. by the coronavirus. First, the world of academia. We talked to the Barnard College president, Sion Bylock. She has also studied stress. She understands that. And also the world of sports. Paul Rabel, of course, co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League. The sports world shut down completely. Got to say, both of those conversations really inspiring for for me, certainly, and I hope to our listeners. First up, though, we did spend some time with Daniel Zwirn. He's the CEO of Arena Investors, and he had, Jason, a lot to say about the investment environment and just the world at large. It's been evolving. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we certainly saw equities breaking down, uh, but the kind of o- over-the-counter institutional markets were relatively immune and un- you know, really weren't reacting at all. Then we started seeing um, kind of institutionally held, um, basically arbitrage-related positions starting to come out, starting to get liquidated uh, of various sorts across um, rate of return things in, in merger arbitrage and relative value. We then saw large-scale selling and liquidations of kind of institutionally held loans and ABS offerings, of which we probably haven't seen at these levels in several years. In most instances, still a good ways away from kind of where the bottoms of an 08 or an 02 or 98 look like, but um, certainly uh, a a level of activity and a type of activity that's been uh, a long time coming. So, Dan, how far away do you think we are from that bottom? Uh, I think if you if you did it kind of apples to apples in a very general sense to where those other uh, where those markets kind of bottomed out, um, I think it looks like we're probably a third to halfway. Um, wow. You know, there's a good a good way to go because you know as I've as we talked about uh, in our earlier discussions, there was such an absolute frenzy of credit uh, fueled originally by uh, the kind of depressed risk free rates from the monetary authorities that. Uh, things got so overdone uh, that it just means that the 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 the, uh, the trip back is going to be longer and harder. So I have a thought there, though. So if it wasn't the virus, from what you're saying, because yeah, it was such a frenzy of credit, right? We all talked about all the money that was sloshing around there, whether it's the public markets and you know, especially even in the private markets. So was it just a matter of time that something, um, maybe not of this magnitude, but we would have had some kind of undoing of all of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's totally consistent with the last, you know, several hundred years of market behavior. 
ultimately the thing that kind of knocks the market off its off its chair is going to be something uh, none of us counted on by definition if we were counting on it that it wouldn't do that (laughs) and so every every five or ten or fifteen years you're going to see this and and by the way it doesn't really seem to uh fit the kind of normal distribution because we've had you know we've had four or five one in a million year type things happen you know in the last 25 years so clearly something's amiss and so when you saw this kind of frenzy happen I would liken it potentially to, you know, not to 08 or 01 uh, or 01 or 98, but really to 02, where the mm. WorldCom fraud happening uh. in the wake of Enron and others happened, where there wasn't a fundamental change even in the general macroeconomic environment as much as a, 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 an absolute repricing of risk and reward across the credit spectrum. That's a and really smart there, point. Yeah. Keep going. I'm sorry. There have been... Uh, well, there's just been there's just been so much. Uh, this party has been such a frenzy um, that, and it's l- lasted so long, even relative to kind of normal careers, that right. the number of people, even uh, old enough, who are still in the market, who were senior enough to be kind of at the trigger in some of these uh, old time times, so to speak, uh, has dwindled. And so, this is a big surprise if you just haven't lived that long. Right, uh, and so that really exacerbates what you what you see. And then, as I noted in a in a bit of a paper I wrote, you know, there's a whole series of secular changes that happened in the wake of the of the crisis of the 08 right. crisis that have changed the game, uh, such that it, it if a situation like this ever arose, the issues that it caused would be greatly exacerbated. And that's Dan Zwern. He's the CEO of Arena Investors. He's a specialist in, this is the term of art on Wall Street, Carol, (laughs) special situations. And listen, this is beyond special. It's extraordinary, the time we're living in. And yet, investors, they are getting their heads around this. We saw that this week. And you start to see strategies form around where we go from here. And I have to say, Jason, I found it really helpful, and I hope our, our, our listeners did as well, that listening to investors who have gone through some of these market disruptions, market cycles, whether it's the financial crisis or other, I think, um, was really helpful in understanding how we got through that and how it's different, perhaps, than what we're going through today and how we get out on the other side. And I found it so interesting that he didn't make the comparisons that everybody else is making no. to 2008, to 2001. His comparison? WorldCom. I found that so interesting. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Barnard College President Sian Bylock. She explains how COVID-19 is impacting higher education. I think this was a really thoughtful conversation about how it's impacting the student body, her administration, but also, Jason, about she's done a TED Talk on stress and how that impacts us. I think really helpful at this time. Front of mind for sure. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had on our daily radio show about the coronavirus this week. One of the individuals we spoke to is in the sports world, Paul Rabel, a friend of the show, Jason, and it was really great to hear what he had to say. He's the co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, and obviously this affects the world far beyond lax. We have never seen anything like this certainly haven't imagined uh, that a world would exist where there are no professional sports leagues in play at this moment. Um, And so for all of us at at the league level, we've actually locked arms and uh, are are 
having conversation daily. So between the PLL, the NBA, the PGA Tour, um, and then there's also a, a seasonal tranche of uh, decision makers. So probably uh, safest right now are fall sports, right? And uh, and we're in the summer, so we're certainly uh, observing what the current leagues are doing that were caught in the middle of the season, having conversations with all the networks, the venues shareholders, advertisers, and with the news about the Olympics postponing, which, you know, it, it, I thought it was anecdotal to the way this whole, you know, this, this whole last seven to ten days have gone, really. It's felt like we've, uh, we've experienced a whole year's worth. So to put it in perspective of the Olympics, they sent out an email to their membership around the prospect of discussion of postponement, and they would have a decision in four weeks. They made a decision in 24 hours. Yeah. So it seems to be uh, the, the the state of leagues right now is we're having minute by minute and hour by hour conversations. But our goal is to continue to persevere through this and get our product out to the communities um, because we're we're servicing a lot of constituents from our fans to our players and uh, health and safety and following public official guidelines is uh, sits at the top and is everyone's priority. But for a long time, and we're talking a century, sports have been core to human connection, and they're tribal, and it's the way people feel entertained and motivated and so on. Yeah, and there is still this need, this drastic need, and I see it among even our, our you know editorial community of people being home and feeling very isolated. So to that point, Paul, what are you guys doing to continue to connect um, with your fans? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Carol. So where there is challenge, and I was listening to you guys talk about the public markets, there, there are also opportunity. And so if you look at the network television landscape, what we've seen is, is, is as OTT and technology have disrupted is that live news and live sports have become the last standing firewall. So right now, network, national and local news has seen a dramatic uptick. There is no live sports on right now, so the traditional sports networks are replaying old programming, but also looking to acquire programming that hasn't hit the shelves yet. So they're looking at expedited documentaries and expedited docuseries timelines. We're going to see a big pop in an NFL draft. But in the interim, we've seen big climbs in engagement on social media, and in particular, tools that these platforms launch like Instagram Live, where you're seeing not only musicians, but athletes go live on these platforms and communicate. So that's the silver lining is, is finding through technology in an era where we've never had this level of connection with an audience to uh, maintain that sense of entertainment and human connection that sports have traditionally brought through live games. And so, Paul, knowing that the timeline is incredibly fluid, you know, when does your team, what's your timeline for thinking about your season, which I believe is scheduled to launch at the end of May, right? That's right. So right now we're uh, a May 29th and 30th opening weekend, and it's getting tighter and tighter, Jason, to, to your point. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot that we're going to find out in these next two weeks as, mm-hmm. as we're in the midst of of the curve. And, uh, you know, there's a lot that our economic leaders and public health officials are, are deciding on. And right now we can, we consider ourselves very much a part of a horizontal strategy to, to self quarantine as a nation. But I, I think it will evolve into a more verticalized strategy to focus on imminent threats. Mm. Um, and, and then from there, we'll, we'll see uh, kind of a trickle back up to normalcy, hopefully. And so for us, given our 
cushion, so to speak, in scheduling matched with our tour base model, which we had announced with Bloomberg now about a year and a half ago, we actually have uh, about a dozen scenarios that we've planned around contingency of if we have to delay the start, we can actually pull by virtue of that tour base model. So similar to like Jenga and restacking your right. blocks is we can right. take week one and slide it to our first bye week in July. We can take week two and slide it into our second bye week. So right now we have about a half, half of our scenarios where we maintain a full regular season playoffs and championship. And then the others, we can take a traditional game weekend where all of our teams are in market, extend it a day or two, and do double headers. And that's Premier Lacrosse League co-founder and player Paul Rabel. And I love his perspective. He's an entrepreneur. He's an athlete, obviously. But he's also clearly, from that conversation, very much in touch with the broader sports world, Carol. He understands the mechanics, the media aspect to it, the fan aspect so much. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Executive Chairman of Cureleaf, Boris Jordan, joins us on how the medical cannabis company is dealing with the coronavirus outbreak. And how he's dealing with it as a parent. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show, Bloomberg Business Week, about the coronavirus, its impact across the world. And that includes, Jason, a conversation that we had with Cureleaf Executive Chairman Boris Jordan. He's been a member of the Bloomberg 50 list, uh, and we've talked to him several times over the past year about the industry overall. But uh, this conversation definitely had a different tone. How do you deal with a crisis like the one that the world and the country is facing right now? And how do you deal with it when you're worried about your workers, you're worried about your company, and you're also, of course, worried about your family? I uh, had actually a daughter who um, came down with the virus. She's young. She worked for us uh, 27 years old. And uh, three days later, she's feeling much better. So I hope that's encouragement to everybody. That's obviously a scare for, for me as a father. But um, uh, it was good to hear from her this morning. She, she's in Manhattan. She said to me she's feeling a lot better. Wow, that's interesting. And so, I mean, without we don't need to. I don't want to get, invade your privacy at all. But um, it, it's so interesting and, and heartening to hear that that somebody uh, somebody recovered uh, like that. Anything more you can tell us about her experience? I, I just think, listen, I, I I think that overall there's a lot more cases out there. Yeah. Uh, that, that that we don't know about today and. Uh, many of them are, as we saw the statistics coming out of New York, are, are with younger people, uh, and they seem to be recovering reasonably well. And I think that's the encouraging thing about this. Obviously, uh, that's not the case with the uh, older population. Right. Uh, and obviously, our our our, our hearts and, and, and minds go out to their well-being. And, and we're doing everything at our company. As you know, we've been granted uh, essential uh, services designation in all of our key markets around the country. Uh, we provide a very important service uh, for for our medical patients uh, who are dealing with either um, cancer treatments or or pain treatments or uh, or uh, children's epilepsy, where we provide uh, the necessary drugs uh, to help these um, uh, and products to help these uh, families through difficult times. And you know, our business, like everybody else's, has changed dramatically. Sure, um, we are. You know, we're serving curbside. Uh, we're doing mobile uh, delivery services. Uh, we're doing anything we can to keep both our employees. Uh, and um, our clients and 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 partners and and and, and patients safe, right? Uh, uh, so that uh, we can continue to deliver on the products that are necessary for their well-being. 
And so, Boris, help us understand, like, what does that designation allow you to do in, in terms of increased uh, latitude or, or operation? Well, we've had to, our business is very highly regulated. As you know, it's still federally legal. So we've had to go state by state and negotiate with the various governors in order to give us these things. I have to say some, most governors, um, and I'd like to thank them in advance, have been very, very responsive uh, to this and making sure that we can deliver a safe uh, in this products, our products in a safe way. And so, you know, what we've done is we've negotiated a curbside delivery that was never allowed in any of the states before. We've negotiated uh, mobile applications and online sales. That hasn't been allowed. Home deliveries in some states that was allowed, in many states it wasn't. So there's a lot of changes taking place. I think they're all positive changes uh, for both uh, this terrible time that we're being faced with now, but also I think going forward, it will help the industry become much more mainstream. I think, you know, just several months ago, nobody would have thought that, you know, cannabis would be made essential, would be designated essential services. And it's one of the few industries in the country that has been so far. Well, I think that's really revealing what you just said. And I do wonder, you know, we keep talking about what will be the longer term and lasting impact of some of the things that we're all doing to adapt in this situation. And I do wonder about the regulatory environment, understanding, okay, what needs to be changed, what needs to be perhaps loosened up. Do you feel like this will ultimately um, stick with us? I think so. I think, listen, the biggest problem we all face is obviously federal banking and federal legalization. I think it's time for the federal government to understand and see that every governor in this country, uh, that's 30-some-odd governors that have uh, medical cannabis in their states have made it, uh, most of them have designated it uh, as essential services. Um, there's huge demand from the population for this. Um, uh, and it's time for the federal government to allow, for instance, credit cards and banking services so that we can make the process even safer today. No matter what we do, we still have to exchange cash, whether it's curbside, whether it's in the store, whether it's on home delivery. That obviously adds to the, you know, the danger of the spread of the virus. Um, and, and we've been requesting this from the federal government now for better part of 10 years, and they're very slow to move on it. And I would say that's the last bit that we'd like to see uh, uh, changed. And we are working, our, our lobbyists are working in Washington as we speak to try and see if we can get that. But, you know, the, they're ingrained in their ways in Washington, D.C., and, and there's still a lot of opposition, even though the population overwhelmingly, 93 percent of the population Right. for medical cannabis around the country. Boris, I do need to ask you, because I think this is a situation we're all trying to figure out, you know, what workers get really taken care of uh, during a crisis like this? And some of the bigger companies, you know, those workers continue to get paid. Uh, we're certainly not seeing that necessarily in a lot of the hospitality industry. You can see here. Your workers are being taken care of and everybody's up and working and will be. Even we, if- are, we are. We are. Our first priority is our employees and our customers. We've broken teams into A teams and B teams. They're working at different shifts. Uh, we've gotten masks and gloves for everyone. Obviously, we have, we're paying bonuses uh, at the end of the month for uh, those workers that are on the front lines uh, in order to keep them incentivized. We are looking after those that, are, that are, have fallen ill, um, and, and we haven't really had any, so we've been very, very lucky, but we know we will. And so right. and, and we're in, you know, as you know, we're in, in, in 19 states around the country. And so so we, we, we have a very wide reach and we are looking after all our employees. And right. I have to thank all of them today. I'm sorry I'm doing that on the radio to say thank you very much for continuing to provide services to our patients. I'm curious, too, as someone who runs a business, understands that there needs to be safety nets for workers. You're seeing some of the bailout programs come along. Um, what's your take on everything that's happening uh, out of Washington uh, and the assistance? 
I think it's very important uh, for Washington to finally approve this package. I think it's um, uh, important for the workers in the country uh, so that um, we have millions and millions and millions of people that are out of work. I've heard estimates that uh, layoffs could be somewhere between 20 and $30 million over the next quarter. Uh, we need to address that. That would be bigger than even we saw in the Great Depression. And, and I think it's very important the federal government to step up. And uh, we've been waiting now for, you know, for over a week for the federal government to get its act together with this, uh, with this bill. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, I don't know how much of this bill is going to be available towards uh, workers, uh, um, uh, you know, as, and, and how quickly it will be available. But we're certainly all hopeful that it will be available to workers and to people that are laid off very, very quickly. I mean, Schumer said it's uh, unemployment on steroids. I think the the people that have been laid off in the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry and the airline industry are really hoping uh, right. to receive some assistance here during these difficult times. So, Boris, help us square something, uh, especially given what we said at the top, that, you know, you have a personal experience with this. You know, uh, certainly through your daughter, what it's like here in the New York City area in terms of this virus really ravaging this area. And yet we also, at the same time, have a call on the part of many business people, on the part of the president, to really get back to work. You know, the president talking about Easter. How do you balance those things and how do you look at it uh, as someone who's running a business? Listen, I have to say, it's, it's, I would not want to be the president of the United States right now. Um, somebody uh, uh, much smarter than me put it this way. Uh, just imagine he's got two shoulders. On the right shoulder, he's got the medical community, which is telling him uh, you need to, you know, uh, uh, quarantine the country. You need to slow down uh, transportation. You need to stop the virus. Uh, and on the other side, you've got um, the economists uh, uh, that are telling him, you know, if you keep this going much longer, you could bankrupt the country. And that would create much more hardship uh, yeah. for the country than uh, what we're doing. And I think the biggest worry I have is the people that are losing their jobs are the people that need them the most. Mm. Uh, and that's what I am concerned about. And, you know, the longer this goes on, the harder it is going to be for uh, the more uh, needed, needy part of our population, the people that are in the in the in the um, uh, you know retail businesses and the in the in the hospitality industry, uh, you know union people, we we really need to look after these people, and so it's a very difficult decision uh, whether we start the economy or not. But I do think they're not going to have much of a choice. At some point, they're going to have to. I hope that the country uses these next two weeks to really quarantine seriously. Uh, I'm more specifically focused on the young population, which in some places isn't taking this very seriously. They need to take this seriously. We need to slow the virus down. And then we need to get the country back to work. We are a capitalist economy. Uh, and, and, and a capitalist economy cannot survive without being without working. So well, I think we need to get this country back to work. Um, how fast? I don't want to make that prediction. It's not my I'm not an expert. Well, it's interesting that you say that because, yeah, the younger population, we've certainly seen uh, New York City Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio talk about it. And New York Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, you know, threatening to shut down parks and things just to kind of stop it. You you have a younger community, right, who are working at, um, uh, you know, your various retail outlets. Um what are they saying about that? I mean, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of nervousness. Um, they understand, uh, you know, the people that work in the cannabis industry are very, very dedicated. Uh, and, they, and, they, and they truly believe in the product that they sell. And so we've had a tremendous, uh, uh, um, you know, sort of, sort of effort uh, on behalf of our employees to stay there and to 
service our patients. That's Boris Jordan, the executive chairman of Cureleaf, Jason. And I think it's safe to say that when he started talking about his daughter having the virus and having to, you know, continue running his company, being worried about workers, but then having to, of course, first and foremost, being worried about his daughter and making sure she was okay, um, it really took the story uh, in a whole different direction. Well, and it's also interesting to think about this industry and what it may mean, a pivotal moment. We know that from Mm -hmm. covering uh, the cannabis boom, as it were, over the last couple of years. He obviously is right in the middle of it. What happens next remains to be seen. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download podcasts. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 